The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. Um, sometimes it can be hard to get started in the afternoon after a decent lunch, right? So um, since the time frame is a little bit longer this afternoon, I thought what we could plan for is to have a 15-20 minute tea break about halfway through which would be around 3.10, 3.15, depending on where I am in my notes. And that would give us about an hour and a half before the break, about an hour and a half after, because I think I probably have enough material that will go till 5. So in terms of talking about women who are important in the Buddha's life and the continuing tradition of storytelling about them, um, we are up to the two main characters, uh, Yasodhara, uh, and Mahaprajapati. Then so we'll do Yasodhara, um, the Buddha's wife, first. And um, <clears throat> there are at least two traditions of storytelling about her. There are probably many more, and I just don't, you know, I don't know the Chinese sources or the whatever. There probably are more traditions. But there's a northern tradition and a southern tradition um, which are very, very different from one another. Northern tradition here, of course, means um, the, tra <coughs> the traditions that were in northwest India, uh, in Kashmir, uh, etc., Afghanistan, and that went from there into Tibet. Um, there's a story that's not well known at all to most students of Buddhism that's told in, the, in a text that has a very long note, name, it's the Vinaya, in other words, the monastic code of discipline. <clears throat> um, Vinaya called the Mula Sarvastivadin Vinaya. M-U-L-A-S-A-R-V-A-S-T-I-V-A-D-I-N. Sanskrit's always just like it sounds. If you say it slowly, Mula Sarvastivadin Vinaya. Um, there are three Vinayas that are still being practiced in Buddhism. And this is the Vinaya that's practiced by Tibetan Buddhists. Oh, so it's, the Vinayas are very similar to one another, but the surrounding literature, um, the stories that are, by Vinaya I mean the rules of discipline, they're very similar. But the stories that justify particular rules can be quite different. And this story found in the Mulasarvastivadin Vinaya is, I, I don't have the text myself, in English, because as far as I know, it hasn't been translated, but it has been commented on, retold, condensed, and commented on by a number of people, um, and it's uh, it's it's rather different from the one we're used to. Now, I don't think Tibetans, by the by and large, don't pay that much attention at all to the life stories about the historical Buddha. They're interested in Padmasambhava because he's the one who brought Buddhism to Tibet. 
And Padmasambhava is 8th century AD, so that's a long time after the beginnings of Buddhism. A lot has developed in Buddhism in the interim. But when they tell stories, hagiographies, stories of the great saints are very, very popular in Tibetan Buddhism. Very popular. Because they're regarded as, like, these are stories you should study when you're in retreat. They're stories about what can be done if you practice intensively. But pretty much they begin with Padmasambhava. Milarepa, of course, is very, very popular. Um, those are the two most popular figures about whom stories are told. But they don't go back in a tradition of storytelling very much before that in any tremendously real-lived sense. Nevertheless, uh, the texts do contain a story about Yashodara or Yasudara. And in this version of the story, Rahula, the Buddha's son, now, isn't it interesting that the, apparently the name was given by Siddhartha to his son. Rahula means something that holds you back. It's a, a, something that binds you. or um, It's often translated as fetter, F-E-T-T-E-R, um, which is, you know, quite appropriate, actually. Maybe we need to talk about why world renunciation was so important in early Buddhism, if that question comes up. But anyway, in this version of the story, the son has not been born on the night that Siddhartha leaves home. He has not yet been born. He was conceived the night that Siddhartha left home. It's quite a different story. And the story is quite long. Oh, there are lots of little ins and outs in the whole story. But uh, he has, Siddhartha has decided to, to renounce the householder life, to leave home. Uh, but he decides to have sex with his wife first, as the text rather delicately puts it, lest people think he wasn't a real man. <laughs> I bet none of you have heard this story. Uh, so there's a sequence, they have sex, then there's a sequence of dreams that both of them have. And I don't have the book with me that has that material in it, and I don't remember the whole sequence of dreams. But Yasodara wakes up very troubled about the dreams she has had, like her bed has been broken. I remember that motif, her bed has been broken, and um, things are, it's not, a, it's not at all a pleasant, happy dream. So she's very, very troubled by the dreams she, she has. And Siddhartha says, but look, your bed is fine. It's right here. Go back to sleep. And they go back to sleep, and they have more dreams. And she wakes up again, and she's just really troubled. And her request, she kind of has an inkling that Siddhartha's going to go somewhere or take off. And she begs him to take her with him, no matter where he goes. And this is a motif that's going to come up in a lot of the more extended stories about Yasodara, that she feels such an indissoluble connection with Siddhartha that all she really cares about is being with him. Doesn't, she doesn't care what he does, but she feels this incredible connection and need to be with him. So she begs him to uh, take her with him no matter where he goes, and he promises that she will. But when she wakes up in the morning, 
he's gone and she's pregnant. And uh, the text glosses this incident away or explains it away by saying that what he really meant is that eventually he would take her along to nirvana. And eventually in the story, he does. So um, in this story, she's pregnant, but Rahula uh, goes through, or she goes through, or they go through a six-year pregnancy. And Rahula is born at the very same time as Siddhartha becomes enlightened. So the two stories, the two incidents coincide. They happen at the same time. And in the meantime, during the six-year period of Siddhartha being on his quest, she follows the same regimen he does, that when he fasts, she fasts which is why her pregnancy doesn't progress, because she's fasting to that extent. And then when he decides to eat, she starts eating. And as he's sitting under the bow tree becoming enlightened, she gives birth. Rahula is finally born after a six-year pregnancy. Um, Now, the notion that she followed his regimen even after he left home comes up in other sources as well. So, um, you know, what's going on here? What in the world is this story about? As I have in my notes here, I regard this as a very strange story. What's the point? Does anyone have an initial take on it? Microphone? One thing that comes up for me is it's very interesting that she gives birth to their son the same time as he founds a religion, basically. Mm -hmm. There's right. something very deeply symbolic about that. It almost makes them parents again together of the order, in a way. It's, yeah, you were going to say something? It's, it's as though they're equal um, travelers, uh, a, a, a two-part person on this path. Mm-hmm. Um, his, uh, well, I think that's enough. I think yeah. said enough. Anybody else want to hazard a initial reactive guess? Codependent arising. Codependent. What do you mean by that? Codependence in the Western sense or in no, the Buddhist sense? No, in the Buddha sense that together they are arising and even though they're separate, they are still together as you know, two two for one, as someone else said. Well, he's going off and leaving the world completely, and she is, in a way, continuing in samsara with rebirth, yeah, with birth. So they've taken, actually, two very different paths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So we have one one interpretation that they are in two very different paths, uh, and one interpretation that they are somehow um, together in the same quest. What my notes say. Um, what's the point? All the struggle, and the man becomes a Buddha, and the woman has a baby. <laughs> That hardly seems parallel. Or is it about the indissoluble partnership that continues even when Siddhartha leaves and was for far longer than one life? And that's more the interpretation that seems to come up in all the continuing traditions of storytelling, both northern and southern, that there is a partnership between them that cannot be broken, uh, even though they they diverge at a certain point. And the stories, which I'll tell in a few minutes, one of the themes that was most popular was retelling all the previous life stories of Yasodhara, in which going back for incalculable numbers of years, she and Siddhartha, or the, per, the, the being who became Siddhartha later, they were always married. They were always each other's consorts. That they were together life after life after life after life. And one of her complaints or issues continues to be, we've always been together. Why did you leave me this time? So in that sense, you know, there is that also that fork in the road. Though the fork in the road where, you know, her complaint is, why did you leave me? This is so, I've been so loyal to you. I've done so much for you in all these lives. And you, this time you went away and you didn't even tell me where you were going or what you were doing. What, you know, what are you up to? But then the, the, the connection comes back in that in all of the accounts, Yasodhara becomes a nun and becomes an arhat. So at the end of their lives, they're back in the same, same track, which is his track of the world of uh, practice and the world of, uh, of beyond samsara. Uh, so what, what's intrigued me about these stories and the way they're told is that I think they probably, you know, as you move into Vajrayana and you start to get the yabhyam imagery of the couple, which is so off-putting to so many Buddhists who don't understand it and so titillating to so many Westerners. The Yabium icon is not about sex. People think it is. It's not about sex. That's a total misunderstanding of it. It's about the indissoluble partnership of wisdom and compassion symbolized in the union of male and female. But it's a symbol. It's not a valorization of mundane reproductive sex at all. It's a symbol that, that wisdom and compassion always have to be together. You cannot be a fully enlightened being with only one side of that pair. Just as there cannot be any further, further, furthering of the human species unless 
male and female come together in the same way that to have babies male and female have to come together for there to be enlightenment wisdom and compassion have to be joined and I'm monkeying around here with my hands because we have a lot of mudras in Vajrayana to talk about that the most important of which is this you'll often see figures in tankas with their arms crossed like this this is the male side this is the female side and they they join they don't merge they join they're you know they're both still distinct and yet there's a there's a partnership and a a uh, cooperation there so um i that's what i think is probably going on in this story so in a sense all the guesses that have been put forward seem to have some relevance that they there is a point where they separate and seem to go in very divergent directions and no it doesn't seem parallel to get enlightened and found a religion or to have a baby because many women have babies very few people found religions and if you know if i were going to do one or the other i you know which where where i'd be going <laughs> um so in that sense it's not you know it's not parallel but in another sense um there's more more of a being on the same track by having this idiotic you know impossible going through a six year pregnancy you ever heard of such a thing but they're more on the same track with that story than in the story in which Brahula is born and then uh he leaves and we don't hear much about her in most of those stories we don't hear too much about her afterwards now in the tibetan's the mulasarvastivadan vinaya which i'm teaching talking from there are some further developments in the story after after he gets enlightened and she gives birth to rahula what would people say about someone who has a baby 6 years after her husband leaves <laughs> yeah that uh She was then accused of having been unfaithful and Rahula was evaluated as illegitimate. And um she had to prove that Rahula was actually uh, the Buddha's son. Yeah. She uh, I, I don't have the details of that in the notes I have with me. But then um there are stories about how we can call him now Buddha came back to visit his family and um in this particular story Yasoda Yasoda still hasn't given up on trying to bring Siddhartha back to her that they will be a, nor- a samsaric a worldly husband and wife she wants that and she wants it still in the story at this point Now one of the things when you read the stories of the early especially the early monks um who renounced their families left their wives and children a uh, very often the wives are portrayed as what dressing up putting on all of their finest clothes the wives were not happy and usually the father and mother of the son were not happy either and she is portrayed as putting on all of her finest clothing and jewelry and going out and waiting by the route she knows her monk husband is going to take when he goes looking going out for alms food and tries everything she can to bring him back and of course the stories of the monks that wind up in the taragata the songs of the male elders none of them succumb if they had their stories wouldn't be in the 
book on the songs of the male elders. But I'm sure there were, you know, there must have been quite a few people who had become monks who, you know, were seduced back into conventional life by their wives by the side of the road. Often it's portrayed, it's really poignant. She, she has a baby often by this time because, you know, until he had reproduced an heir, it was extremely inconsiderate of the young man to leave home. He has to produce an heir. Once the heir is there, the, you know, the, the patrilineage is intact. He doesn't necessarily have to be there as long as there's a male heir. That's what counts. And she's often there at the crossroads, not just in her best clothing, but with their child. And, you know, why, why, why don't you, why are you doing this? Why don't you come back? So Yasodhara also wants Siddhartha back as her husband, even after he becomes the Buddha and she has given birth to Rahula. So uh, she sends Rahula to the Buddha. This is a very interesting story. She sends Rahula to go to the Buddha. She's made an aphrodisiac uh, <laughs> out of sweetmeats. So, you know, innocent little story your son is going to the child is going to give this person something to eat it happens to be an aphrodisiac uh, but Siddhartha or the Buddha is on to the plot and so he produces 499 clones of himself <laughs> once you've you know this is the Mahayana Trikaya version of things once you fully understand the body of the teachings fully once you've perfected your immersion in Dharmakaya, you can produce manifestations. That's a lot of what, especially Tibetan miracle stories are about, is people who have that very high level of understanding and can therefore produce emanations of themselves as needed. That's what tulkus are, emanations that are produced as needed, supposedly, if you believe that stuff. So he produced 499 clones of himself, but the text puts it this way, a son always knows his father. I doubt that's really true, but the son always knows his father and passes by the clones going straight to the real Buddha, thus again proving paternity and absolving Yasodhara of infidelity. Now here's an interesting twist on the story. Rahula, however, eats the sweet meat. And he is so taken with his father, he so falls in love with his father, that he immediately becomes a monk, too. Now, this is a twist on the story most of us have heard, that when, when Buddha came back to visit his family after his enlightenment experience, Yasodhara sent Rahula to him and said, ask for your inheritance. Whereupon, I think Rahula was seven at the time, whereupon the Buddha ordained him a monk. And that was the basis of the rule uh, because his father, the father of the Buddha, was so very upset because now he's lost the grandson too. And that breaks the patrilineage and that's unforgivable. So at that point, the father objects and the Buddha does institute the rule that children cannot become cannot become monastics without their parents' consent. Uh, so that's the origin of that rule. But, you know, Rahula is ordained already at a very young age. Well, this is a different version of the same story, 
of how Rahula is becomes a monk at a very young age. Um, but the same story. So this story then goes on to say that um, Yasodhara then invited Buddha to her apartment or her quarters in the house in the you know the multi-generation families they had large houses with like apartments for different uh, generations of the family she invited him back into her apartment to try to seduce him and he was of course utterly uninterested Uh, and there are stories in the versions that we tell as well about how when the Buddha he's now properly the Buddha comes back to visit his family for the first time his relationship with his former wife is very tense. That she's not, she's not overjoyed to see him at all. In some versions, she won't even come out to, to greet him. And um, she just says, no, I won't, I'm not going to greet him. And when they do finally see each other, um, she's, she becomes a kind of an emotional mess, as you might expect. And... Um, you know that it's not it's not a happy happy scene when they see each other that first time and then i don't know any real stories of how yasodhara decides then to become a nun but the main the, the different versions of stories at the end of her life they all have her not only a nun but an arhat so uh, somewhere along the line she obviously gave up the i want my husband back level of the story and uh, listened to what he was teaching and decided to uh, go for enlightenment herself. So um, after, after she tried to seduce him in her apartments, then she was so distraught because she couldn't seduce him that she tried to commit suicide by jumping off the palace roof, whereupon the Buddha caught her by magic, saves her by magic, and then preaches the Four Noble Truths to her. I guess he hadn't thought of that before. <laughs> he teaches her the Four Noble Truths. And actually, here is a story. I didn't realize this was so clear in my notes. Whereupon, she is enlightened and becomes a nun. So, you know, in the early stories, people needed to hear very little teaching before they got the point and became arahats. And people often ask, well, how come all the Buddhas early students could get enlightened so quickly and we never seem to. I think it's because we have very magical expectations about enlightenment in many cases. And um, one of the things that fascinates me is a couple hundred years after the Buddha's death, people stopped really thinking that there were any enlightened disciples anymore. Why weren't there any enlightened disciples anymore? Because no one could perform miracles. And this connection between being enlightened and being able to perform miracles became so tight that people, people, I think, lost any sense of the simplicity of a basic level of realization, that it didn't involve being able to walk on water and walk through walls. And this notion that enlightened people can, befo- can perform miracles has become quite entrenched in many layers of Buddhism. I think greatly to the disadvantage, detriment of Buddhism. I'm amazed at how credulous many Western Buddhists are and how much they want to believe in miracle stories and how much they give credence to the great disciples of the Buddha. The Buddha himself could perform miracles, that that's a necessary 
I mean, I've had to argue a lot with students at Lotus Garden about this, and they say, well, I just always took it for granted that being able to perform a miracle was just an adornment of being enlightened. But, you know, the, 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 real, um, the real point is that being able to perform miracles is an ordinary city, an ordinary power, and the ordinary powers are not to be sought because they're so easily misused. And the only city, the only magical power that should be sought is realization itself. And there was very strong tradition in early Buddhism that real people attained realization without even attaining the formless trances. They didn't need to go into these extraordinary psychological states that are of the formless realm trances, but that they needed to, you know, they needed to understand the four truths in a very definitive, thoroughgoing way that's beyond, um, you know, intellectual assent. It's easy to have intellectual assent to the four noble truths. That's not hard. But to truly, truly have them integrated into our systems, that's different. But I tell this material because I just think it's so dangerous when people get realization or enlightenment and the ability to perform miracles mixed up with one another. And that Buddhist hankering after miracles, I think, has really cost the tradition tremendously over the years. And much of this happened, you know, within a couple, two, three centuries of the Buddha's death, a lot of this happened. And at that point, people stopped believing that it's possible to attain enlightenment here and now and started much more to believe that you could only attain enlightenment now in the future when Buddha Maitreya would come and you would be reborn as his disciple and then you could attain enlightenment, but not now. That's the origin of the beliefs that are very widespread in the Buddhist world, that one cannot attain enlightenment at present um, because conditions are just not appropriate. But I think a lot of what caused that belief to develop is this intense fascination with miracles so there's a bunch of miracles in this story, but in the long run, she, she, he, um, he preaches the four truths to her, whereupon she is enlightened and becomes a nun. Okay, that's all I have on the northern story. Um, so any comments? Yes. Microphone? Over here. This connection you're making between miracles and enlightenment and what you said about 200 years after um, so uh, this is both a comment and a question. Um, the stories encourage a belief in miracles mm -hmm. in themselves, um, which encourages the kind of thinking right. you've just described. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing is that, that somehow in religious traditions, once you start to tell stories about the founder, they can always perform miracles. Uh, I have my I have large a very large dose of skepticism about whether they performed miracles during their lifetimes. 
or whether those stories were told about them later. Um, and that, I will admit, is part of my immersion in the materialistic, scientific outlook of the Western world. Many of my friends still believe in miracles, you know. Many, as many of my friends who are Buddhists still very, they just believe in miracles. And to me, it's a bit of a mystery why you would believe in miracles, but they do. And they say, well, you know, we don't, there's a lot we don't know about how things work. And one of the proofs I used to get was, well, people in that day would have thought email was a miracle or airplane travel is a miracle. And my response to that is, yes, but anybody, you know, by, by those standards, yes, but anybody can learn how to use email. Anybody can travel on an airplane. If miracles were verifiable, they should be able to be publicly performed and publicly verified. And that's my immersion and belief in scientific method, that what is what is demonstrable through scientific method, the demonstration is repeated, repeatable. Um, the fact that I can't do it, that I don't understand how electricity works, doesn't make electricity a miracle because many, many people do understand how to make electricity work. But nobody seems to understand how to walk on the water or walk through walls, uh, things that are routinely reported of founders of or raise people from the dead, which is in practically everybody's miracle story. I mean, Jesus isn't the only figure about whom raising people from the dead stories are told. <clears throat> and I don't know quite... It, it seems to be that somehow people think that... Well, uh, let me give you an example of how it works. People think that a miracle story somehow proves the truth of their religion, and that's why they're so popular. My students at the university used to tell me, Every semester they tell me, well, we can, you can tell Christianity is the true religion, the only true religion. Why? Because Jesus could perform miracles. Therefore, that proves that Christianity is the true religion, to which I would look at them and say, miracle stories are a dime a dozen found in every religious tradition. So what you've just proved is not the truth of Christianity, but the truth of every religion if that's what makes a religion true. So we're back to the point, why are miracle stories so fascinating to people? And I think it's because, you know, we, I don't know, we just wish, think, we wish some sorrow was easier to solve. I think that's why we long for miracle stories. Yes, Steve? Actually, there's an interesting uh, twist to that. I was seeing a documentary on Jesus, like, in the last year. And they're saying the fact that he was a healer and stuff like that was no big deal because they were a dime a dozen right. in that culture. So talking about the other things they did, which made him more seem like the Christ figure. Yeah, well, it, it, healers and miracle workers, they're alleged in every culture. And, you know, there are, um, there are examples of uh, healing is not so much of a mystery because if people have a lot of faith in their healer, their minds can help heal them. You know, I mean, that, that's pretty common. Um, 
But raising from the dead, that's a different matter. So it's asserted of, you know, not, I mean, the Buddha, I don't think the Buddha ever raised anybody from the dead. That would really contradict impermanence. But there are, <laughs> there are Tibetan stories, though. One of my favorite women heroes is supposed to have raised somebody from the dead. You know, I mean, people become very credulous at a certain point. Yes. So um, one of the, this is more of a comment than a question, I guess, but one of the things that has occurred to me in studying some of these fantastic stories is um, the context in which they were spoken or written. Um, We look back from our Western rationalist perspective at these, and they seem very fantastic, but perhaps in a culture that put a lot more emphasis on visions and subjective truth, Mm -hmm. they were just considered another part of the language of how you talk about experience without that necessarily a hard dividing line. I I agree Um, with that. That a lot of, like in the Avatamsaka Sutra, in the Vimalakirti Sutra, and a lot of the Mahayana Sutras, multiple world systems are taken for granted. That's why I said I think the comparison is science fiction in our world. Because we sort of know that that stuff isn't empirically or literally true, but we still believe in it. And I think that's the way it was. That uh, there was a lot more emphasis on the rel- relevance of vision, of not visions, the empirical sense of seeing, but a visionary outlook. And, um, you know, people, people definitely in... in that transition period when early Mahayana was developing and was just a minor movement, people definitely believed in multiple world systems and people definitely believed that um, there was a... a, a in, the, in the higher reaches of the desire realm, there were all these layers of places we couldn't see where all sorts of beings... People believed it uh, the same way we believe in the possibility of interstellar travel, even though we know we can't do it or we haven't done it or we can't go there. I think it's, I just think it's very similar. It's just a different language. It's the language that's unfamiliar to us, not the possibility. What about bodhisattvas? Some people would say that bodhisattvas are the... Believing in the existence of bodhisattvas is magical thinking. Well, bodhisattva, I mean, I'm not trying to do much with Mahayana in this particular program because to talk about the origins of Mahayana and what Mahayana is would be a very packed, day-long program. But uh, it depends on what you mean by bodhisattva. Because... Um, for Mahayanists, a bodhisattva is only someone who has taken a vow to become completely enlightened, if not in this life, in some future life. And then the cosmic bodhisattvas, who are much further along the path, that's, that's just... Um, That's just part of the belief system in multiple worlds, that there are other planets and other universes and beings exist in those other universes. And uh, once, you, once you start working with one element in that system, the rest of it very easily falls into place. 
Whereas we think of magical thinking as just silly, you know, something people sort of wish fulfilling, people thinking and believing in things that aren't very realistic to believe in because that's what they want to believe. And it's, it's um, once you are within the Mahayana system and you understand it from its internal logic, you wouldn't ever call it magical thinking because it has its own internal logic. As most highly developed religious symbol systems do, so the point is not so much whether they're right or wrong as whether we understand the in internal logic by which they operate. And once we understand the internal logic by which they operate, they're coherent even if they're not attractive to us or even if they're not something to which we care to give assent. Because that's what makes, you know, that's a very key problem with religious diversity because people who believe in religious systems different from ours are not necessarily silly and stupid. They're just operating by a different logic than we are. And if people would only under, strive to understand, what I always used to insist my students at the university, I, do not, I will not allow you to be criticizing religions from the outside. From the point of view of my religion, your religion is stupid. Well, of course. <laughs> okay. Well, any, in any case, this is still an important point. But from the internal logic, the phrase magical thinking is what got me going. The Bodhisattva is the enlightened being who chooses to come back to this realm to to help everyone become enlightened. Yeah, actually, a Bodhisattva is someone who has vowed not to become fully enlightened until they can take everyone right. with That's them. But Bodhisattvas are not considered to be a fully enlightened. They are on the, on uh, they're above the seventh bumi. They're usually on the on eighth bumi or the ninth bumi, but they still have they still have a little bit of attachment left. And it's said that they're attached to the idea of compassion, or they're attached to the idea of saving everyone. But they still have a little bit of uh, of the veil of um, the intellect, the veil of um, not the emotional veils, but the intellectual veils or the wisdom veils there's still a little bit of wisdom veil left and it doesn't matter to them because they have plenty of time but they're not it's it's not really uh that they're people who are already in, enlightened and um just don't go that last step uh it's a very complex topic but i think it's important to understand that even according to mahayana lore they're not, they're not the same as a Buddha. Buddhas are portrayed as monks, and bodhisattvas are portrayed as uh, wealthy lay people. They have hair, they have crowns, they have jewelry, they have robes. So, So um, they're part of, you know, that whole more. It, it also, it, it's part of a different evaluation of uh, the phenomenal world. Because early Buddhism was very, very, I mean, the, the 
stream of world renunciation in early Buddhism is very, very strong. And it didn't persist. It didn't last really in any form of Buddhism. That that, that intensity of valuing of world renunciation just didn't stay the same in any form of Buddhism. There's a... During, during the Buddhist uh, time when he was alive, weren't women considered property? Pardon? When the Buddha was alive, mm-hmm. weren't women considered property at that point in time? Uh, well, that's a hard question to answer okay. with that terminology. It's very clear that throughout, in most Asian societies or all Asian societies, and until very recently in Western or European societies as well, very few people existed as economic individuals. Men didn't exist as economic individuals either. People were part of a family, part of a a larger social unit. And if you were not part of that larger social unit, you didn't have much of a chance of surviving. It wasn't just women for whom that was true. It was also true for men. So um, women, it was said, and this is one of the reasons why it's said that being born female is a lower rebirth, or not a lower rebirth, a less fortunate rebirth. We need to be very precise about the words, a less fortunate rebirth, is because women always need to be under the control of some man. There was a great fear of independent women, um, as I think there still is today, quite frankly. (laughs) So a woman always needed to be under the control of some man, her father, her husband, or her son, But the fact of the matter is that men were also, I mean, young men didn't have a lot of independence either because they needed to be in the patrilineage. And um, that's why what Siddhartha was doing or what the Buddha was doing was so radical. Because he was, there was a great controversy going on at the time of the Buddha that it was okay to renounce your worldly responsibilities to seek enlightenment but you should first have fulfilled your worldly responsibilities before you left the householder life to seek enlightenment. And other people were saying, no, those who have a spiritual vocation should be able to seek enlightenment from very early on. And in, in terms of how it fell out eventually, what became the Hindu solution is that you should first fulfill your worldly responsibilities that's your duty. Then after you have, after you're in your 40s or 50s, you could or should turn your business over to your son and his wife. And you can take your, take your own wife can go with you and you can go live in a kuti in the forest. That's fine. You fulfilled your responsibilities. But not young people. And that's what was really radical about what Buddhism said, is that young people should be able to renounce the world and leave their families if they had a spiritual vocation that was intense. And I think it's really important to understand that very strong battle that was going on in India of the day. I think this, by the way, is one of the reasons why there was a controversy 
that, that we get a stream of literature that is finally okay with young men leaving their families, but not young women. That that, that was just too much. That, you know, I mean, that was just too much. At least the women would stay to take care of the children and the old people. But if you take women out of that generational household system too, that's that's too drastic. And I you know, if there is any justification for the Buddha's reluctance to ordain women, if that is in fact a historically accurate story about which I have my doubts, I think that was the reason. That he was already in enough trouble and enough people disapproving of what he was doing by luring all these young men away from their families, then you lure the young women away from their families too. And um, people are really going to be, you really break the social fabric. Then, of course, there was also the problem that if you have a bunch of young men and a bunch of young women in the same renunciant community (laughs) uh, that is supposed to be celibate, and one of the reasons people were willing to financially support monks is because of the trade-off between their renunciation and giving them support. People were totally unwilling to provide economic support to monks and nuns who just lived like worldlings, which meant they had sex too. I mean, why would you want to support with your own hard labor people who are not working but are living like worldly people? Why would you want to support them? They're, they're, no, they're having sex, they're having kids. Why should I support you to do what I'm doing? <laughs> so there had to be that division of labor. And, um, you know, while I think that the, a lot of the rules which were set up to keep monks and nuns separate worked very much to the disadvantage of nuns, you still have to solve that problem of how do you keep young young world renunciants from um, just turning into ordinary people having sex and having kids. That can't be. That can't happen. If they want to have sex and have kids, then they should not, they should not become monks and nuns. I mean, obviously things are very different today, but we're talking about how different the world is if there's no safe, reliable birth control. The world is incredibly different. Some of us are old enough to know that. Many aren't. It's incredibly different. Okay. Um, so let's move on into the southern, the southern stories, which are, there are more of them. Um, there's a, the core of it is the story that we know. So um, in the narratives we usually hear about, the only glimpse, the, almost the, the most frequent glimpse we get of Yasodhara is she's lying in bed sleeping. She's asleep. She's not awake with her newborn child in her arms. And Siddhartha comes to look at her. And um, there's, you know, there's a lot of, poetry then about what his emotions were as he went through that experience of could he leave her if he didn't leave her, etc., etc. But she's very passive. She's asleep. She's completely passive. She's just there as the object that, 
of his emotions and his thinking and what he's going through, which she's really quite unimportant in and of herself. And her own feelings at that point, well, she was asleep, so she wasn't feeling anything, right? Are not recounted. But uh, as I said, even this story isn't one of the earliest layers of uh, storytelling. As I said earlier, um, some of the texts only mention his mother and father weeping as he leaves home. If he has a wife, she's not in the story. Uh, we don't know anything about that. And then, as I said earlier, when, when after his enlightenment, the Buddha comes home for the first time, she does not come out to greet him with the rest of the family, saying that uh, if there's any virtue in her, he would come and uh, to see her. And he eventually does, but the reading is very restrained. So there's not much in the early stories. But going on, uh, there's some interesting Thai literature in the, from the 17th century, so it's you know, very late, um, in which when, this, when the Buddha comes home, and he sees Yasodhara, she totally berates him. She just really goes after him. For what did I ever do wrong? I was perfectly obedient, submissive wife. I gave you a son. Why did you do this to me? She's unrelenting in the way that she talks to him. And what does this reflect? What is being reflected in that kind of literature? What's being reflected? Whose voice is actually being expressed there? It's coming. The demanding, difficult woman character is being reflected. I can't, I'm sorry. The demanding, difficult woman, uh, the stereotype, <laughs> but, you know. Demanding, I? difficult woman. It's a demanding, difficult woman who thinks her husband should stay home and take care of her and their kids? Well, I'm not... Well, but he's gone out and become a Buddha. Right. Um, so he had this other, uh, other duty that he had to perform to... to uh, um, that was more important, uh, in quotes. I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> saying I agree with any of this. I'm. I'm. I'm saying this in the context uh, of, of telling telling a yeah. story. Yeah. Whose 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 viewpoint is being expressed in a story about an abandoned wife who is who really lets her husband have it when she finally sees him again? Well, that's what I'm trying to say. This is this is the viewpoint of a, of a man telling the story of maybe I didn't say it that way. Oh, okay, of, well, I think of, of a of a woman who's demanding and etc. One of the women. <laughs> I take exception to demanding. <laughs> uh, if, if I think about who was maybe writing that story, I think it reflects the values of the lay society at the time, that the woman 
would be, and I disagree with this now, submissive and, you know, perfectly obedient, all that stuff, and the man's responsibility is to stick around and take care of her. It was likely reflecting familiar householder values, at least as they saw they, they should be in 17th century Thailand. That's my guess. No. Hmm. Anybody else? See, one of the things about working with these stories is always to question, well, what's going on? Who's the, one of the most interesting, whose interests are being reflected? And you're, you're very right in that I think it, there's an element of it that's reflecting a man's interests. But I also think something else is going on in this literature. It's giving voice to the emotions and experience of probably many, many women who had been abandoned and um, nobody, you know, nobody ever spoke for them. That, that they could read this literature and, and it would express their feelings and their experience, which the original sources don't because she's just asleep She's, she's not conscious. She's not, her experience isn't part of the story at all in the oldest layers of the story. But here, even though you know, it's not maybe what we want, at least the woman's voice is coming into the story. And she's expressing her frustration and her feelings of, uh, of being abandoned. So we have from this point in the story, or a point in the story, where we have uh, Siddhartha and Yasodhara as a couple living on earth now, whenever it was, 2,400 years ago, and he, become, he leaves, becomes the Buddha. She uh, gives birth to their child or has given birth to their child, later becomes a nun. Uh, they have various encounters while they're, just a very few years after his enlightenment experience. From that point in the story, the literature takes off in two directions. It takes off to go backwards in time through their many, many previous lifetimes. And those stories are all put in her voice. They're all put in her voice. And then the story also goes forward to her death. Uh, as, a, as an arhat and as a nun, as a nun and as an arhat, it goes forward to her death. So we'll work with those stories. Um, first, we'll go backwards in time to uh, the very beginnings of the story of Yasodhara and Siddhartha together. And this, of course, brings up the problem, and I think it's a very serious problem in Buddhist folklore. How can you have stories about somebody going from life to life in a tradition that also talks about anatta or egolessness, which I think is a very serious philosophical problem that Buddhists have not solved well. Because you read these stories and there's a being or seemingly a being who way long time ago was this woman who fell in love with this man and this woman and this man then are always together in a very, very long continuum of time. They have different names. They have different incarnations. Sometimes they're even animals. 
but eventually they crop up as Yasodhara and Siddhartha, and then they have this story, and then both of them attain enlightenment. So obviously the story ends at that point because we don't we have no language with which to talk about beings after enlightenment. Now I think that's a very serious problem. And many Asian Buddhists have no trouble at all with that. They just take it for granted that even though there's egolessness, even though there's no permanent abiding entity or self, um, the same person seems to go through all these multiple lives, life after life after life. And it's done in all traditions of Buddhism that I know of. Um, I don't understand it. I just, that's something I just don't understand. So uh, anyway, um, in Yashodara's previous lives, she was the wife of the Bodhisattva in all of his incarnations, whether he was animal or human. So it's projected even back into the Jatakas in which Siddhartha was an animal. And again, I'm asking, this, is this pairing, a prefiguring of Yabhyam imagery in Tibetan Buddhism of this very, you know, there is a kind of dual, a, a non-dual unity that can't be broken. So anyway, um, in the Avadana or the Apadana about Yasodhara's former lives, the story begins when she was a woman named Sumita who gave lotuses uh, to a man who was named Sumedha. The names aren't important, really. And Sumedha is going to be the Buddha, you know, eons and eons and eons into the future. Uh, he's going to become our Buddha. But back, you know, eons ago, Buddha Dipankara was the Buddha of that age, and Sumedha saw him and wanted to take a bodhisattva vow before him in his presence. But he had nothing to offer. He, 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 he Looking for lotuses, he was going to buy some lotuses to be able to present lotuses to Deep, Buddha Dipankara so that uh, he could have something to offer and make the, bodhi, make, a, make the resolve. To make the resolve to receive the bodhisattva prediction, that's how it works, that you, you resolve to become fully enlightened at some point in the future, no matter how long it takes, and you receive the prediction that you will from the Buddha of that age. Now, in our day, when people take the Bodhisattva vow, anybody who gives the Bodhisattva vow is a stand-in for the Buddha. So it's possible to take the Bodhisattva vow even though there are no uh, you know, recognized Buddhas, as far as we know alive today, though according to Tibetans there probably are some. <laughs> we could also talk about who they are. So anyway, uh, Sumedha, who's going to become the Buddha of our age, wants to make a, a declaration or a wish before Buddha Dipankara, but he has nothing to offer. He goes trying to buy lotuses. He sees a beautiful young woman who has a bunch of lotuses, and he says, can I buy some of your lotuses, please? And she looks at him and falls in love with him and says, I'll give you five of my lotuses if you will promise that you will always be my consort in all future lives. <laughs> you know, love at first sight. <laughs> Pretty serious. <laughs> Pretty serious because it's going to 
go on for a long time. <laughs> and um, she also, now whose interests are being expressed in this part of the story? She also promises that whenever it is time for him to, quote, go forth to do his work, she won't hold him back. So she has really fallen in love with him. And she's making, you know, a re- she probably doesn't understand quite what the long-term commitment is. <laughs> but it has been made. Now, she does not take any bodhisattva vow at that point in time. Or ask to get a Buddha prediction. She doesn't do that. But in the Lotus Sutra, which is a Mahayana Sutra, the Buddha of our age, the way he's portrayed in the Lotus Sutra, which is not at all the way he's portrayed in the, in the Pali Suttas, the Buddha of the Lotus Sutra predicts that uh, two women will become Buddhas in the future. In that um, in that Lotus Sutra, the two are Yasodhara and Mahaprajapati. That our Buddha has predicted all of his male disciples, Sariputra, all of the great arhats. In this Mahayana text, they're transformed from being arhats into being future Buddhas. According, you know, it's Mahayana. They're going to be being an arhat isn't good enough. They're going to become Buddhas in the future. And the Buddha predicts of every one of his male disciples, you will be known as such and so, and this will be your Buddha field. You'll be known as such and so, this will be your Buddha field, etc., etc. And there's only two women in the crowd anyway. They're Sodara and Mahaprajapati, and they're the last ones to be predicted. And uh, I think Mahaprajapati receives her prediction first, and that leaves Yasodara sort of sitting there saying, what about me? And at that point, finally, the Buddha says, yes, and you will also become a Buddha, and your Buddha name will be, and your Buddha field will be, etc. So I bring that in because it's so interesting the way in which these twists and turns go between Mahayana and early Buddhism. And uh, so that's an early apadana. That's all that we have. We have the story about the first time that Yasodhara or the woman who will be a Sodara eventually fell in love with the man who will be uh, the Buddha eventually, and they make a pact that they will be together forever. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that this also presumes that they're always going to be the same sex, right? (laughs) That there won't be any sex change. And the whole question, because in Mahayana Sutras, sex change always women to men, but once in a while, men to women. Uh, Sex change is a very common motif in Mahayana Sutras. Some scholars have said that in in earlier Buddhism, there was a pretty strong belief that you were always the same sex, no matter how many times you were reborn. But when we read a little later, after the break, when we read Mahaprajapati's the verse in the Terigata will be able to question whether that's in fact true. But according to much of the Apadana literature, and certainly according to this story, the woman is always going to be a woman, the man is always going to be a man. They're never going to switch roles. 
And in the stories that are told, that's the case. So if you want some further literature about Yasodhara, um, there's a fairly new book that translates some texts from Sinhala, so they're Theravada texts from Sri Lanka, um, two uh, biographies about uh, Yasodhara. And um, these, she, the, uh, the editor, the translator, does a very good job of showing how these texts grew over the years, how they changed over the years, and... Um, And also talks about how popular some portions of this poetry were. That one of the main themes in any one of these extended um, autobiographies or biographies put in Yasodhara's voice, a main theme in any of them was called Yasodhara's Lament. And it's the lament she sings when she discovers that she's been left behind. And the editor, the author, the translator, rather, tells us how these verses would be sung by women as they worked. And they, would, they knew the poetry, and they would also spontaneously add to it and create new verses. And this is how the literature, oral literature, grew and grew and grew until it was finally written down. And that this was a specialty of women, to sing these laments. And again, you know, it's a way that people who... Whether or not we like the message, people whose voices were never recorded in the canonical literature are given voice. That people did say, what in the world was she going through? It wasn't any longer all about him, all about the Buddha. But what in the world was she going through? In one of the texts, um, she even talks about, this is part of the lament, but she talks about, um, I'll, I'll break in on her narrative. Uh, you left, resolved your mindset on being a Buddha, I, too, made a firm resolve to always be your wife. We made our joint resolves together, and you gave me your hand. Why, then, did you leave me today without a word? And that's Yasodhara's lament, that we made this pledge to always be together. Not so much that you left me, but that you left me without explaining why. And that that's really the, the issue she has. And then I'm going to read a few more verses so you can hear the, the immensity of their time together and her grief. We were first born in the animal world as deer. How can you possibly have that kind of memory? But <laughs> We were first born in the animal world as deer. One of the uh, ordinary cities is the power to remember your past lives. So it was common lore, in the, it still is common lore in the Buddhist world. Since that life, we too have never been apart. In every samsaric birth, I was always your consort. Why then, in this life, did you go, leaving me alone? Once we went as ascetics together in the forest. We happily carried our two children in our arms. We lived in two dwellings, separate but in the same forest. 
Why have you left me alone now? What have I done? With full awareness, I too made every effort. By the power of our resolves, we were always together. With our joined hands, we made all our gifts together. Why did you then leave me, my Lord, without one word? My eyes are full, my garments wet. Tears fall as my husband, nectar-like, I recall. Abandoning our son, I now know he has... Excuse me, abandoning our son, I now know he has... I know he has now left. Abandoning our son, I know he has now left. Is there another woman in the world so bereft? Once in a former birth, we were born as squirrels. And our young ones fell into the ocean's waters. I know how hard you strove to save them then. My husband, Lord, why did you leave him now? Did I do wrong to bear you a handsome son? Did I fall short in beauty, goodness, strength? Was a disrespectful act unwittingly done? Or did you dream of being a Buddha conquering death? So that kind of thing goes on for pages and pages. But um, at an earlier point in the story, there's also some attention to Siddhartha's feelings as he's leaving and looking at his, because this story has him looking at his sleeping wife with their already born son between them. We'll cut in again. Sick of samsara, this is obviously Siddhartha, sick of samsara, he turns to the ascetic path. The king sends several queens to hold him back. Disillusioned, he turns away from that pleasure park. Whatever happens, I will leave today. This, of course, is an allusion to an older story in which Siddhartha had not only a wife but a tremendous number of concubines or consorts or whatever. And they were commissioned by his father to do absolutely everything to allure him to keep him in the palace. And he kind of dismisses them, and they all, they all fall asleep. And he falls asleep too. And when he wakes up, all these women are snoring and you know, <laughs> spittles running out of their mouths and their garments are flung this way and that and they're lying in awkward positions. And that's supposed to be one of the insight the incidents that gives him the insight that even things as beautiful as these women don't last. So I had better go. I once critiqued a paper where the author said, well, this was very misogynist. I said, no, that's not misogyny. That's, that's just, you know, that's not... Because the the women look you know don't look so attractive when they're sleeping and snoring. <laughs> That's not misogyny. Okay, so disillusioned, he turns away from that pleasure park. Whatever happens, I will leave today. The bosat quickly rises from his bed. I'll abandon pleasures, become an ascetic. He says, "Who is that standing at the door?" He asks. It is I, Chana, that's the, uh, his servant, Lord, who's at your door.
Virtues practiced over long years in samsara are now complete. The heralded prince has come. That's, of course, Rahula. I will become become an ascetic when I've seen my son. The fortunate prince Rahula has been born. My friend, our friendship stretches back through time. Today will be my final journey. Give me my rich and precious ornaments. Prepare my horse, friend. Deck him in in his finery. The minister weeps. Tears stream down his face. I will now see my son and will come back, Siddhartha says. He goes to the royal palace where his wife resides, and he sees her on her bed fast asleep. He rests his blessed hand on the golden lintel, places his blessed feet on the gold door sill, sees her sleeping like a moon on her pure bed, withdraws his foot, turns away his head. She sleeps on a bed heaped with lots of flowers. Milk flows from her swan breasts for the baby prince. Yasodara, full of virtue, who, who has never done wrong, except perhaps unwittingly being a threat to Buddhahood. Her hair falls loose, long, blue-black. Curls frame her face like twirling tops. The baby in her arms suckles content. How can he leave once he's seen those golden breasts? From long ago, I fulfilled all the virtues. I practiced giving to be a Buddha, to save all beings. She's lovely, moonlike, preeminent among women. Shall I say just one word to my dear queen? My lovely queen sleeps on her golden bed. Shall I draw near, look at my baby by her side, her arm cradling him as a golden vine? My eyes are drawn to my lovely sleeping queen. The baby sucks his milk from that jeweled dome. What more is there to see? It is no use. You have never failed me, not in thought or deed. His mind holds firm. His eyes fill with tears. You've wept more tears for me than the seas hold water. Does this wide world hold a woman as good as you? Today I leave you in order to become a Buddha. I must destroy desire, be firm in my resolve. For one wife and one child shall I give up my quest or save countless creatures from samsaric round? No, today I'll leave all I love, become an ascetic, What a radiant, lovely child is my Rahula. By the power of our our past resolves, you and I are now prepared. You are paramount among women, Bimba, my queen. No more will we walk together the samsaric round. I will come back as a Buddha. Wait for me. So um, it was one of the things that you can see how this much later poetry is much more interested in the emotions of both people than the canonical stories are. And so, of course, you know, ordinary people could see themselves much more reflected in these stories than in, you know, stories about somebody who could just easily leave his wife and child behind.
So since we are at the point in time where we're at, we need to finish Yasodara's story about how she becomes a nun and an arhat. And in both of these texts, the lament finishes. That's a key high point in her life, her grief at having been left behind. But then she becomes a nun and um, becomes enlightened, performs miracles, dies. And I'm going to go straight to the final story um, in the focus on her final days and on her death. She and Buddha are the same age. So if the Buddha's going to die at 80, she has to die at 78. Or rather, she decides, and Mahaprajapati also makes this decision, I will die before the Buddha. And one of the reasons they give is that if both of them died at the same time, there would be too much it would be too sad for everybody else. It would be too much to take at one time for both of them to die together. So she decides she wants to predecease the Buddha. So at age 78, she decides she should die before the Buddha uh, and goes to him to talk about it. And they share a conversation in which the Buddha declares that she has supernatural powers not second to his. Uh, which is certainly something we don't find in the canonical stories. <clears throat> then when the Terry Yasodara asked permission of the Buddha and recounted the details of her past lives in samsara, at her words, the Lord looked out over the past in samsara and saw the following. How, how so? Knowing how great a help she had been and her infinite goodness during their past in samsara, he said, there is no woman comparable to Yasodhara in this entire Buddha era. This revered person is one who has the knowledge to see uncountable eons of past lives. She has acquired the divine eye and divine ears and has the unique and special powers of sight and hearing. She has extinguished all defilements. She has arrived at the summit of the three kinds of knowledge. She has supernormal powers, not second to the Buddha. It's a very strong statement, isn't it? Supernormal powers, not second to the Buddha. From the day that she became an arahat, she has continued to live as an ordinary nun and did not exhibit her miraculous powers. Thus, none have seen the power of her miracles. Men living in the world do not know what kind of person the mother of Rahula is. Is she an arahat or is she not? Does she have miraculous powers or does she not? They have doubts. Therefore, Yasteri Yasodara, it is not right that one of such great merit as you should disappear privately into the state of nirvana without displaying the, your powers to the world. You should perform some miraculous acts he said. So this is interesting what's words that are put in her mouth. At this she thought, having obeyed him in numerous past lives, now in this last life I should do likewise. And in accordance with the wishes of the Buddha, I will now display my supernormal powers and perform miracles. And so as my notes say, at that point she begins to perform supernatural miracles that you would have to be a pretty good special effects person <laughs> to be able to ever capture them uh, on film.
So the miracles go on for some pages, and during the course of performing miracles, she also preaches a sermon about emptiness. And then after performing the miracles, she launches, this, these are two different texts that I'm lumping together here, she launches into a discourse on their many lives together and how faithful and loyal she has been no matter what he did even bragging of how many times she had sacrificed her life for him or he had given her away, but she never became angry with him. So there's something here. I think it's very double-edged because on the one hand, the Buddha is praising her as being his equal, right? She's done everything he's done, except discover the Four Noble Truths, which only a Buddha can done can do but you know in in early buddhism once you once you understand what the buddha taught then there's no difference between your experience and his and so she had done that but after she displays miracles because he asked her to then she goes through the litany of her past lives and she's very direct about things he had done to her in all those numerous past lives he had literally given her away. He had given their children away. That's the famous Vesantara avatar, the last previous rebirth of the Buddha, in which without even asking his wife if it's okay, he just gives away their children because he's perfecting generosity. And I've always been you know, really put off by that kind of story, that because you're a man, you have the power to give away your wife and children. <laughs> it's like... And that proves you're generous. I did I, the value system that is behind those stories. I find very, very problematic. And so, what's the double edge here? On the one hand, we're saying you should stop disparaging women the way you tend to, because after all, some women are almost are almost equivalent to the Buddha. They, they're not the Buddha, but they have understood everything the Buddha has understood. They have the same miraculous powers. But on the other hand, in previous samsaric lives, he abused her. And it's just, that's it. It's not, it's, there's no criticism of him for having abused her in past lives. So what happens to people who are listening to this story? They get a double message. On the one hand, women can be as enlightened as men, But on the other hand, both women and men are also getting the message that of course men are going to abandon women. Of course men are going to abuse women. That's just the way it is. And so you just have to accept those kinds of things. So, um, you know, I think we should be careful to read, see the full message in these texts. On the one hand, women by extension are being elevated they're being people are being told a woman can become as spiritually advanced as spiritually proficient as a man that can happen and these miracle stories prove it but on the other hand um, in ordinary conventional worldly life we have to expect that you know men will abandon women and men will abuse women that's just the way it is so um after listening to this story, the Buddha praises her as someone who in countless lifetimes has practiced the requisites for enlightenment together with him. He says, for countless lifetimes, she's practiced all the requirements to be enlightened as fully as I have. And this goes on for pages and pages and pages. And then finally, um, 
on page and the end of the book. Um, after everybody, the residents of the three worlds know of the power of the Teriya Soda's great acts of merit and her enormous miraculous powers, thought it was time to give her leave to go. So uh, she's going to leave, and he says uh, the setting of the Buddha's own son, namely achieving nirvana, will occur in 24 months. And um, she worshipped the Buddha, bad farewell, circumambulated him three times, that was always the custom, stepped back and raised both hands in worship, saying, now listen to this. Just as the water that reaches the sea does not flow back into the river, and as the water that goes into the mouth of Makara does not return to the sea, so I, who never left you over an infinite period of time, will now go away and not be seen again. So saying, as if a universal monarch's jewel was suddenly hidden, or as if the sun had set, she left for the nunnery. Uh, when she left on the Buddha's advice, the monks and laity gathered there, followed her. She went to the nunnery, and that night achieved nirvana, they said. Later, the Buddha, with the hosts of God, Brahmas, and a large crowd of people, gathered and performed the funeral rites. Thereafter, the Buddha took the relics and had a stupa constructed, offered flowers and lights, and instructed the residents of Dambadeva to make daily offerings in order to acquire the blessings of heaven and nirvana. Thus, because of that great stupa, all people could perform acts of merit and arrive at the city of heaven and the city of nirvana and escape the sufferings of samsara. Uh, you have to remember that this text is from the 12th or 13th century AD to know some of the context. So, I think, let me see if I've got any further notes. Oh, I have one more little set of notes. She turns up in the uh, Avatamsaka Sutra as well, as I mentioned this morning. So don't, uh, the pilgrim finds her seated on a jeweled throne, surrounded by 84,000 women. Mm -hmm. Mahayana exuberance. Uh, he asks her how to perfect the Dharmakaya to produce infinite form bodies and manifest them. She tells him her own avadana, the story of her past lives and liberation, beginning with the life in which she first met the future Buddha. Same thing, they were husband and wife in every life thereafter. She always supports him, which makes her queen of the Dharma realm. And she ends her advice by telling the pilgrim to seek out Maya, the queen mother. So, um, comments on this material, and then we'll take a break. Comments, questions? Nothing? I just find a really poignant um, story that you were just telling about sort of her, it sounded to me like she was rebuking him. Is there that tone of criticism or rebuke? Or well, I think that um, yeah, I think that depending on how you read it and who you are mm -hmm. that women could hear the story as 
expressing their frustrations with men. And men could hear the story as, well, this is this is okay because even the Buddha did it when he was, when he before he was the Buddha. So I think that I think the stories really are very complex, and that they express a lot of voices, and a lot of things that you know, as I keep saying, are not in the canonical stories, which is why they're they're such a rich resource for how people in the 1100s, 1200s, 1300s read and heard the stories about the Buddha and how they obviously were interpolating themselves into those stories. You know, that men who had to go away on long sea voyages or into the army or uh, to make a living somewhere else, that they would really regret leaving their wives and children behind. It's not one-sided. I mean, the stories about how how... I mean, the Buddha is crying as he leaves her. It's not a story you find in any other source. So I think they're very, um, you know, very worth studying and contemplating. But yes, I think you can hear, I mean, she says, you did all these terrible things to me, and yet I never abandoned you. But that's pretty clear. You did all these terrible things to me, life after life after life which is how women usually experience male-dominant marriage. There's no picnic. And, you know, one of the classic Buddhist ideas about why women, why women have less fortunate births than men, why it's less fortunate to be born as a woman, is because it's a pain in the ass to live in a patriarchal society as a woman. Buddhists have recognized that for centuries. It's not, you know... One of the five woes that women face is having to leave their natal families to go live with their husbands' families and having to spend all their energy taking care of their husbands and their children. That's in the texts. It's one of the things that means it's less desirable to be reborn as a woman than as a man. We have to add in patriarchal societies or in male-dominated societies before before there's safe, effective birth control. Um, and, um, you know, what was the Buddhist solution to that? Women can be reborn as men, which often seems so cruel to Westerners who hear, that's the solution? I can have, I can have that piece of equipment too in the future? That's the solution? But I think you have to understand how hard women's lives are without birth control and in a society that just takes it for granted that men rule the roost. And so that was, you know, that was the only solution people could think of was change of sex in a future life. I, I really, that's, I think, a very, very important point. So um, something came up in me. I don't know. All of a sudden, a, a kind of reflection on bringing up where you began the story about uh, stories as a means and the um, the, side of, the sort of ecology, the ecosystem of popular, the need to pop, have lay people in so that the the mix so to popularize. Now, if I zoom up 
and look at all these stories now from that perspective, it feels then these, I've kind of, in my practice, avoided these stories. <laughs> because the daily practice is one thing, and these stories are the, the popular means. And it feels that one, for my, myself, I personally feel I need to zoom up again <laughs> and see it as that. I don't know if that makes any sense. I mean, it's just a, an image that came to me yeah. just now to kind of put the day and the conversation in a context. Well, the question becomes, how do we zoom up? And I think that a large part of zooming up is to transform Buddhism, at least in our culture, at least as Western Buddhists, to transform Buddhism so that um, it's no longer a male-dominated religion. Because otherwise it probably will be again in a few generations. So, uh, you know, you can't, you can't study Buddhism seriously for any length of time without running into the reality of male dominance in Buddhism. And so you have to do something besides go to the nice lofty level of, of gender-neutral Buddhist teachings. Buddhist teachings are so wonderful, they're so gender-neutral. And then we have the male-dominant Buddhist institutions throughout history. So uh, what I'm doing with these stories is trying to show that there's a lot more, that we, can, we, we need to continue to tell stories. We need to tell different stories, though. Yeah. We need to tell different stories. We need to... Um, these stories reflect a certain time and place. If we're truly immersed in the Buddhist... In the Buddhist Dharma, we will be telling stories that are different. And part of that is, well, I'll talk a little bit about it at the end, but the, the continuing stories about women throughout the ages who have really risen, have risen above. Um, another little spin on that, and that goes to your theme of diversity and all of us kind of having this different expression of a path so to speak and the daily practice whenever a sort of non-doing non-self being moment by moment um, is maybe for me more important than any of the stories but an appreciation of these stories and the resonance and perspective you give is extremely valuable. Somehow, though, the institutions, because I've crossed across institutions, thinking we all come end up in the same place. <laughs> so personally, in a certain sense, the practice is the central. However, the, the institutions mm -hmm. may have more importance for others. The practice should lead us to transform the institutions. If it doesn't, one can question how well we're practicing. And if we ignore the institutions, as so many people have encouraged me to do, 
<laughs> Believe you me. That's a brilliant thing. Oh, that's a problem. Even to the point of, well, we don't need to get rid of generic masculine language in our liturgies. It's perfectly okay to use the word he to stand for all human beings. What's the problem with you? You're oversensitive. If you weren't so reactive, you wouldn't mind. If you were more enlightened, you wouldn't mind that we always use the word he to refer to females as well as males. It gets twisted around so very fast. If you were more realized, you wouldn't care about equality. That's an ego trip to care about equity and equality. I can't tell you how many times I've been told that. This might, you know, again, when i sort of zooming up again or giving a different context, is that in these stories, the male, female, I mean, when that is both or and. Hold it close to your mouth. Like that. People are always afraid of those microphones. They don't like them close to their mouths. Um, so when we again are kind of in a sort of place of composure where we're all kind of, when it's a sense of being fully concentrated and whole, the male or the female, it's the end and the whole. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, go on. That's all I mean. Yeah. I think that's what the teachers mean when they say enlightened mind is neither male nor female. It's beyond gender. Of course it is. You know, of course it is. That's not, uh, that doesn't mean that male-dominated Buddhist institutions are not a problem. Um, And the way that that often gets twisted, as I just said, is that people will say, well, if you were more enlightened, you wouldn't care about male dominance you'd be perfectly content with male dominance because that would prove that you were egoless <laughs> so um, you know unfortunately spirituality is always embedded in human institutions even if you're a solitary yogi practicing in a cave there's still a social context And the social context, um, in many ways, can be very limiting. It can limit our vision of who we are and what we could do. I have been told that there are any number of nuns, and I won't name in which Buddhist country, but it is a Theravada country, practicing as nuns to gain enough merit to be reborn as men so that they can be enlightened. That is... 20th, 21st century today in our world. It's not stories from Sri Lanka in the 12th century. The point of going through this material is to show that there's a lot more in the Buddhist record about gender. And gender has been contested a lot more in the Buddhist record than a superficial reading of um, Buddhist history and the sort of most common textbooks would ever tell us. As I said this morning, Buddhists have always contested gender 
and I see this kind of material is really contesting the adequacy and fairness of male dominance in Buddhism. And I think we need to know that's always been there. It's not just these bad Western feminists. (laughs) Okay, we have about an hour and a half left. Let's take a 15, 20-minute break, and we'll come back and talk about Mahaprajapati. Sorry, I couldn't come this morning. We had some acrobatics right here. There was this this monk who was supposedly really.